The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, Vulture TV podcast listeners. I'm your producer, Sam Dingman. This week, we've got a very special edition of the Vulture TV podcast. This past weekend, as part of the Vulture Festival, Matt and Gazelle were joined live on stage by Rachel Bloom and Aline Brosh McKenna, who are, of course, the co-creators of the CW show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. They had an awesome conversation about the show in front of a very excited crowd. And for this week's edition of the Vulture TV podcast, we take you now to audio of that conversation recorded at the Vulture Festival at Highline Stages here in New York City. Stop the image of you and me Getting married on a hillside Surrounded by ducks And then we get into a rowboat Oh my god, I think I like you Oh my god, I think I like you But I say no, no, no No, no, no No, no, no Is everyone in a crazy ex-girlfriend mood? <laughs> uh, we'd like to welcome Aline Rush McKenna and Rachel Bloom, co-creators of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The obstacle. Thank you. That's good. Is this, the, of the, uh, is this the right chair? Thank you for coming the, out so early. This looks like we're for... going to sing. For our first number, <laughs> where's my ukulele? <laughs> <laughs> you know how I am with my uke. Yeah, you and your uke and your comedy songs. Yeah. <laughs> Always doing your silly yeah. little comedy <laughs> songs <laughs> on <laughs> uke. Okay. <laughs> so that clip we just saw yeah. was from one of my favorite episodes. Thank you. Um, and kind of as we get towards the end of the first season, we see Josh and Greg and the love triangle kick into gear a little bit more. And I, I, that kind of started conversation toward the ends of the season about, you know, the show isn't really about who Rachel, who Rebecca ends yeah. up with. Um, yeah, same old. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just curious how much that whole plot dynamic of the love triangle how much do you see it as kind of a crucial component of the show? Well, I mean, I would say it's a... Um, when you're in that phase of your life, when you're a young person, a lot of the ways you define yourself in, are in terms of these personal relationships. And for women, there's so much emphasis placed on um, your relationship with, with the opposite sex. And so we're, we're sort of equally exploring sort of what's going on in her life, but also the messages she's received about her relationships with men and how she needs to behave. And, and, and you know, for us, a big preoccupation is um, love and how women are sort of sold this idea that romantic love is going to cure them or heal them or, in, her, in Rebecca's case specifically, make her feel whole. And so she's a little bit like, 
you know, somebody who's bouncing between medicines, you know, between medications, where she's sort of like, this guy makes her feel a certain way, but it's not quite exactly what she wants, and then this guy makes her feel a certain way for a little while. And what's interesting about this episode is that she's been sort of rejecting Greg for most of the series, and then as soon as he is interacting with her sexually, um, he's not... Uh, he, he, he relaxes a little bit because he's finally gotten the thing that he's wanted. <laughs> and so he stops wooing her, and that makes her insecure, which makes her think she likes him. <laughs> so for us, um, it's more about, uh, I think, exploring those sort of needs that she has to feel validated. Yeah, we're really interested in using... Is this okay, level from the mic? Yeah. Um, we're really interested in using, like, talking a lot about sex and love, but then talking about the things, everything but sex and love, like, you know sexual dynamics or power dynamics and when you're obsessed with someone it's like well you're obsessed with the things that they give you that you don't have so like um i was so glad that we in the clip we showed that we could get away with all that stuff because it's a song about it in essence a shifting power dynamic um and i actually think the shot of him pushing her head down is really important um because it, that's the i mean you know sex is power and like the idea that she is for the first time around this person very very vulnerable um was really important for us you know i i read i think last week vincent rodriguez who plays josh chan said something about how season one is just a prologue to the story how could you talk a little yes, bit about what is, that? Yes, what does that mean? <laughs> well, you know, that's, it's interesting because um, I think I've said that to Vince before. In some ways, because, spoiler alert, you know, we ended last season with her actually admitting the premise of the show. She moved there for him. The first season was all about, in some ways, the denial of the title of the show. Right. That's why the theme song is, you know, it's Josh just happens to be here. Yes. Sort of the theme of that season is it's the... You know, we're, we're sort of exploring the different phases of romantic pursuit, and the first season was really pretending like, oh, yeah, no, I just happened to, like, have moved here, but, like, not for any particular reason, just, like, this guy happens to be here. And that's why <laughs> her id is all outsourced to Paula, pretty much. You'll notice in most of the episodes, it's Paula's the one who's, um, you know, driving forward the pursuit. And so she sort of functions as Rebecca's id. And then what you see in the last episode is she kind of over, she sort of short circuits because she's been processing all of Rebecca's sort of deferred <laughs> desires. Yeah. And so now, now that, she, that, you know, now that Rebecca has admitted this thing, now what's going to happen once Josh kind of knows that this is, he's, he's a big reason why she's there. Um, and what, how is she going to feel and how is he going to feel on the heels of this uh, union? Does that mean that the theme song could potentially change? Yeah, it's changing. It's changing. We're we're writing an entirely new theme. Yeah. It's going to change every year. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Someone was like, yeah. Fuck you, Game of Thrones. Same stupid theme song. The wall. I've been to the wall. I've been to Marine, bitches. Show me something new. You were, you were I love that show. About, you were talking. <laughs> you were talking about the the last scene um, where Rebecca kind of spills the, spills the beans about everything. Did you have different versions of that in mind, or was that always no? We always no. It was so fun to do actually because Aline directed that episode brilliantly. Yeah. 
We're just going to spend the whole podcast saying stuff the other person did and going, come on. <laughs> the shower scene, how cute did she look? Come on. Um, I really insisted on that shower scene. That was really important. Um, <laughs> but it was weird because, sorry, slight, you know, you're shooting. It looks like I'm in the shower, but, like, it's a shower set. And I'm wearing a bandeau and underwear. And at a certain point, I just started to take a shower. I was like, this is really relaxing because it was hot water. And I kind of forgot all these people were watching me. And I just started to really clean myself. And it was fantastic. Um, I'll tell you a funny thing about that last admission, which is that that, uh, when we shot that last episode, it was really long. When when it came in, it was 55 minutes. And so we had to get it down to 42 minutes. There's 13 minutes that's uh, on the cutting room floor. So we did not have time to do our saga cell. We initially, oh, that's what the credit sequence is called, a saga cell. Has anyone heard that term? We'd never heard it before. I hadn't heard it. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's because you're selling the the premise of the show. So anyway, that credit sequence that we have that's 30 seconds long, we didn't have room for it. So we were just sort of like feeling like we didn't, the show episode wasn't quite complete without it. And then Rachel and I were sitting in the editing room and I had this idea. And it was the kind of thing where we've been working together for so long. The minute I was about to say it, I was like, oh, she's, this is going to really tickle her. So I asked the editor to just put that little bumper of just the little thing that goes, crazy ex-girlfriend, boop. After she says the thing and Josh is horrified and he sort of looks towards the camera like, oh, shit. <laughs> what have I done? Which is, a, you know, like all the men who worked on that episode were really like shaking when she says, um, the moment I saw you, I knew you were the answer to all my problems. <laughs> That's when the, the editor, the guy who cut it was a guy who was like, I can barely watch that part. Because <laughs> when a woman says that to you, you're screwed. So... Josh is sort of like, it's da- he's not the smartest, so it's like dawning on him yeah. that he's screwed, and he's like slowly looking like, and then right as he realizes it, we put up just that little two-second bumper, crazy ex-girlfriend. Well, almost also to be like, remember what the premise of the show is, Yeah, where it's just yes. like, where it's like, oh, like whenever people tweet at me, like, she should be with Greg, I'm like, have you seen the title of the show? <laughs> like, this is not going to be a mad about you comedy about two neurotic people right. living in a New York apartment and their dog, Murray. Like, <laughs> these, are about, these are about people who are seriously fucked up and in pursuit of happiness. And, but my favorite thing is the way you directed me in that last scene where you, you came up to me and you were like, can you do it like you're just bursting to tell him? Like, <laughs> and it was a really great direction because the whole season she's been lying and lying and lying and lying. And finally, now that they've had sex, she can, oh, she can finally tell him. And that's what happens when you bottle up secrets. They come out at the worst possible Time. times. And every take of that, Rachel would be like, she got really into like being nestled in Josh's arms. And she was taking these deep breaths and she started to like nestle into his armpit. Oh yeah. So the take that we used is actually pretty early because like by the fourth or fifth take Rachel was just like all up in Vinny's armpit going like. Because <laughs> it's the pheromones when yeah. you just like. Yeah. I mean I, I yeah. yeah. I re- <laughs> well I was going to say I remember like I definitely like there was a guy that I slept with and like I feel like he left his dirty underwear at my house and I was just like I love you and like it's you when you're really obsessed with someone there's an animal there's an animal you just and I was I smell Vinny's armpit Vinny smells lovely yeah I think can't you all tell that Vinny smells great oh yeah Yeah. except um in episode this is pretty great so in episode 13, which is the one where um, they kiss, 
Uh, I was sick. I was really sick. And um, I'm not sick right now. I'm just hoarse from this press store. Um, but I was sick, and Vinny didn't want to get sick, and someone told him, eat garlic. Raw garlic. Raw garlic. So Vinny comes to set. We're supposed to make out reeking of garlic. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Is your problem? He's like, I ate a whole thing of raw no. garlic. <laughs> and the thing is, he washed his mouth out with mouthwash, and it, oh, he still no smelled like an Italian restaurant. And we realized <laughs> it was coming out of his nose when he exhaled. Oh, and so I think he tried to put Altoids up his nose, but it didn't work. So just know that, like, whenever you see that scene, like, oh, it's such a hot kissing scene, I'm, I am literally like, just like, it's like I'm housing a bunch of pasta. <laughs> Um, like fumes from the pesto. It was like, yeah, it was like the most like unsexy <laughs> sex, like sexy scene that I've ever shot. I, uh, Aline, I had read that. Um, well, you you talked to Vulture actually about how your and Rachel's dating histories, yeah, influenced the show a lot. Do yeah. you have any stories that really directly made it into the show from your own dating lives? Um, oh, directly. I don't know if things were directly, but you know, the, the interesting thing to us was that. When we met and we started working on the show, we both had like a million stories. I mean, I did stuff in pursuit of my husband that really is so illogical and insane. Um, and then when we started pitching it to people, I mean, we had an executive who um, went like this with her blouse and showed us this tiger that she had had tattooed on her shoulder after a breakup because um, she was still obsessed with this man. And, like, everybody... I mean, we could go... I swear to God, we could go through the audience. Everybody has a story of, like, something that you've done that makes absolutely no sense. And it's usually along the lines of, like, inventing some weird... Re- That's just the story we told in the pitch was my friend... Um, a friend of mine had was broken up with this guy, and she uh, said to me, Oh, I ran into blank. I ran into blank uh, this morning, this guy she was obsessed with who had dumped her. And I said, oh, where'd you run into him? She said, in his driveway. (laughs) And I was like, "Um, what were you doing in his driveway? And she goes, oh yeah, you know, he lives near the beach. And he said, anytime I wanted to rollerblade, I could park in his driveway. And I was like, you don't rollerblade. (laughs) And it was a Thursday morning. So this poor man who's broken up with this woman walks outside and she's like standing there merrily holding her rollerblades parked in his driveway like, whoa. (laughs) So everybody has those stories. That's the story that actually we told during the pitch. And um, one of the funny things was, so you know when you pitch stuff, we pitch it probably nine times. Oh yeah. And you have your your spiel that you do and that, that story was part of the spiel. And our agents came with us to the pitches. And so our agent had, my agent had heard that story a bunch of times and knew how it was supposed to go. And in one of the meetings, I just flubbed it. Like I just, I said it in the wrong order, whatever. And I, we've been doing this long enough. Like I would have just kept talking and I blew the joke, whatever. When I blew the joke, he let out a sound that was like this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he totally, like I said to he totally like, sold you out. <laughs> it was like, it was... Yeah, that was, but here's the thing, like, that whole thing was a weird pitch, I won't say where, but, like, it was a weird pitch, it was a really cold room, um, and I think that, like... He felt like we were just barely had we the were, ball We up. were yeah. just barely had the ball up, and then in the end, they were like, yeah, so we, we'd love to buy it. <laughs> and, That's and I was true. like, what? That's really? That pitch seemed horrible, and they were like, yeah, no, we, we love, we love it. We were <laughs> laughing our asses off. Yeah. That was a great one, because Rachel and I just started working together, Rachel was 26, and so we walked out of that room, and Rachel was like, what happened? Did we just sell the pilot? What happened? <laughs> I was so confused. Um, that's, that's not the network we're on now. Yeah. Um, 
I, and I think the interesting thing with my dating history is I had a really extreme situation um, years and years ago where I was kind of in a secret relationship. Um, and so we knew each other's like Facebook passwords and would sign into the other's Facebook book and send each other secret messages on our Facebook to ourselves. Like it was this whole thing where it was kind of a collective madness. And so I, I felt crazy. It made me feel literally insane, but because, and then when he broke it off and then he like, he said, you know, I love you. I want to marry you. And then he broke it off suddenly. And then when I would, and then when I would be like, wait, wait, but we were in love. He'd be like, okay, crazy. But like, no, you were just as part of this as I was. And that's been really important for us to remember is whenever there's someone labeled as crazy in a relationship, chances are the other person is also to blame. Like, you know, these yeah. guys who call their ex-girlfriends crazy, crazy, it's like, well, you were probably a fucking asshole to her. Right. And that's and why she's quote unquote encouraged her and let her on. And, and you want your own crazy that you're now like shutting down on. And, and so it's always, um, we never want to look at Rebecca as an other, as kind of, um, insane and deluded as she gets. We always want to make sure that like, someone else is privy to it even if it's society right even if it's like society telling her that love right. and infatuation is okay it's not her just being like a disembodied crazy person and everyone else being the straight man uh it's a collective madness somehow i mean the other thing that we have talked about a lot is like if you go to a wedding now people's weddings toasts are often sound like these stories. It's like, oh my God, we met, we went on a blind date, then we broke up for a while, and then I slept with his best friend, and then I moved in with his best friend, and then I dated, you know, my chemistry professor who was his cousin, and, you know, it's like everybody has, like, a long, because, you know, we're not, we're, it's not the 50s anymore. People don't go on blind dates and then date and get married. Everybody has a long, tortured thing, and um, in the case of me and my husband, it was like a, it was a saga that stretched out over years, and we were friends, and bi-coastal, and, but I, at a certain point, I was just like, he needs to marry me, and I embarked on a mission to make it happen. Um, and it happened. And it happened. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> And, and so, I mean, and it's great. And so, I think you know, it's not as uh, simple as because uh, we're obviously not pursuing. We're not writing about someone who is psychotic. We're we're, we're writing about somebody who is depressed and anxious and has uh, smidges of, of compulsive disorder. But um, you know, courtship. You're encouraged to act this way. You know, you're encouraged to act in a very heightened, extreme way. And we. Um, I've written, you know, romantic comedies. A lot of that behavior is also psychotic. That's the, the only socially acceptable form of insanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard, yeah. Because yeah. the way it makes us feel, love makes you, I mean, all these love songs, Yeah. these love songs that are, you know, I'm talking about like the whole of music history, like the love songs that are out there aren't, chances are they're not about like the deep attachment that comes after you've right. been married. They're about that obsession when you're first dating somebody and because mm -hmm. it feels so euphoric and they've done studies on people who are in love and what it does is it, um, um, it floods you with dopamine, which is also what happens when you do cocaine. And, yeah. and then your serotonin levels drop about 40%, which is what happens when you have obsessive compulsive disorder. And so what you're doing is you're an OCD person who's on a ton of cocaine. <laughs> and so it, it's the chemical reactions it creates in your body creates this euphoria that, that then society has been like, well, that euphoria is what makes the world go around. And it's like, mm, is it? Uh, and it's, it's actually like, I wish there were, we had more words for love because it's weird that we yeah. use the word love to describe that 
and like what you'd feel for a spouse and what you'd feel for, for a child. child. Like and what you feel for your friends. It's just right. different. And it's what like you feel for pasta. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Definitely. So, so Although I have yeah, to say, like pasta for me is pretty close to the OCD cocaine thing. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love pasta. That's that's one one of the things that I love about this show. And you know, I always tell people you. Uh, you come for the comedy and the music and you stay for the, psych- the acute psychological insight. <laughs> you know, like, because you do have that and I don't think, uh, uh, for some reason, I think eventually people, a large number of people are going to catch on to this, but this show, when I think of this show, I think of it as like, it's like, a lot of times it's like Bojack Horseman or Mad Men with songs. Oh, like in that sense that, that it's... That means a lot. Thank well, you, actually. Yeah, but, you know, in the sense that you're looking at... You've got this main character who is an expression of all these different psychological states and the difference between who we think we are and who the world sees us as. But there's all these other characters who are going through a version of that, too. Like, everybody That's, seems oblivious in their way. It's interesting, because when yeah. Rachel and I first started working together, I mean, I come from movie world, and Rachel comes more from the comedy sketch animation world. But interestingly, the two series that she and I were obsessed with in common were Mad Men and Breaking Bad were two... I said Breaking Bad. That's not how you said it. Mad Men and Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. <laughs> Mad Men and Breaking, Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad? <laughs> My parents are immigrants. Um, but, they are. So they're, they're, and those are long-form, as we were just saying, you know, they're long-form narratives, really. They're 40-, 50-hour movies. And that's really what we were trying to do and also to sort of explore one person. You know, in Mad Men, it's literally a descent. You know, that's what the credit sequence is. Mm-hmm. And Breaking Bad, similarly, is sort of a, a descent and a and an ascension in a way. And um, those, those were kind of, as, from a storytelling, not from a tonal standpoint, obviously, but from a storytelling standpoint, those were the touchstones for us. You've, you've talked about how Rebecca is meant to be kind of a bubbly Walter White. <clears throat> I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And we also have a clip I want to play first of a song that kind of Ooh. gets across. Oh, I can't this. wait. Well, should we watch the clip first? We, yeah, let's about? watch the clip first. Great. I'm excited to see what this is. <laughs> Oh, I think I know which one this might be. Yes. Yes. I try to be good to others. Treat my fellow men like brothers and sisters. That's the story I'm the hero in. So how come I can't zero in on why this song sounds so sinister? Oh, my God. I'm the villain in my own story. I'm the witch in my own tale. Though I insist I'm the protagonist, it's clear that my soul is up for sale. I'm the villain in my own story, the bad guy in my TV show. I'm the who in the who done it. When I go to hell, I'll run it as Satan CFO. He needs someone to do the books. Actually, I shouldn't do that. I'm terrible with money. But wait, how am I a villain? I give annually to UNICEF. And just last week, I helped a lady cross the street who was super old and deaf. Wait, where am I? Ah, a bird! I'm the villain in my own story. I'm the bitch in the corner of the poster. I'm the figure in the doorway or the kraken up in Norway. God, who is this song's composer? It's like ridiculously sinister. Like ridiculously sinister. <laughs> well, well, well. Looks 
just like I've got you now, Valencia. What do you want to do with me, you evil witch queen? I am but a humble yoga instructor. Oh, what I want is your boyfriend. <gasps> Not Prince Josh. Anything but Prince Josh. Why are you doing this? I'm Kate Hudson. We're doing the witch and the princess thing. Okay, just go with it. Okay, so fine. I'm the princess. Why? Why are you doing this to me? Because I'm jealous of you and your life. Yes, I'm and Josh is so perfect that I want to take it all for myself. And now, I'll cook you into the traditional dish of Dinaguan and serve it to Josh's family. No! I'm the villain in my own story. My actions have gone way too far. I told myself that I was Jasmine But I realize now I'm Jafar We're told love conquers all But that only applies to the hero Is the enemy What I meant to be Is being the villain My destiny Um, I'm really, really proud of that musical yeah. number. That's a great what number. Was the, what work went into the makeup? Um, it was, I gotta say, it was terrifying and upset. I couldn't look at her on set. Yeah. She was just like, I kept being like, I can't, I can't. Because she's so adorable, and see her with the monstrous makeup was... It was really fun because um, I was, in high school, I was the witch in Into the Woods, which obviously <laughs> really kind of informs this. And yeah. um, But when I did it in high school, it was high schoolers putting on like these really thick prosthetics with spirit gum. And so, like, I wrote this um, musical number knowing I would have to put that horrible makeup back on, but I had it fitted to my face, and then, like, it was way more comfortable than it was in high school. Um, this was such a fun number to do. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, in terms of being a Walter White, you know, it's yeah. she's, she's really, you know, in those movies, like, if you look at My Best Friend's Wedding, you know, Julia Roberts is the villain of that movie. Cameron is. Diaz is minding her own business, and here comes this bitch. Yeah, she's... You know? Um, and it's, you know, she's the aggressor. Rebecca she's the bitch the in the aggressor. corner of the poster. Yeah. Exactly. But she's the yeah. aggressor, and, and I think it's... We want to explore sort of her culpability, and it became sort of a, a, a refrain in the writer's room about, like, she's the one who's not being... She is the... She's an anti-hero, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I... That... We, Alina and I, when we pitched the show, we pitched the entire series, and we know how the series ends, and we kind of know the general arc, and um, you talk about, when Vince Gilligan talked about Breaking Bad, he said, we want to turn Mr. Chips into Scarface, and that's kind of our arc. I mean, you're, she's not going to get better. <laughs> like, otherwise the show wouldn't Would be called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, right. and, and um, you know, the show's about pursuit of happiness, and the whole thing is she's going to take one step forward, two steps back, and more and more, she's going to be making the wrong decisions. Um, and it's important that, that you understand that, why. Isn't that push-pull really interesting? Because when you're watching Breaking Bad, you're kind of thinking like, oh, Walter, you have enough money now. You know, get right. your shit yeah. together. But if he did, there would be no show for you to watch. So it's a push-pull. And with us, it's like, just get some help, Rebecca, and, you know, settle down with a nice guy. But if she did, there wouldn't be a story. So they have similar push-pull in that. I love, yeah. I love how uh, in that number, well, 
couple things. One, that it gave me such major flashbacks to The Little Mermaid. Yeah. The mm-hmm. Poor Unfortunate Soul number. That was very, that was, I would say it's a mix of, yeah, it's, it's Poor Unfortunate Souls mixed with like Snow White imagery yeah. mm-hmm. in general. There's that, and there's also the, uh, the awareness kind of at the edge of this number that this is her centering herself. Yes. In the yes. world. This yeah. is her centering herself in the world. And it's something that I'm, I've always been fascinated with in all the TV and movies that I watch. How aware the story is of the fact that the hero of the story is not the hero of the story to anyone else in the story. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and like often, like when I make a list, like if I were to make a hierarchical list of the shows that I consider to be really great shows, their awareness of that is what puts them up at the top. That's you know, like, like the, the degree to which they refuse to endorse this fantasy that Hollywood sells, that, yeah. you know, certain people are the heroes and other people are the supporting characters or the foils. Right. You know, where, like, you have, like, you see all these romantic comedies and, you know, action films, horror films, everything, where you have the hero and their best friend is the person who gets three scenes in the movie and, the, and their dialogue always consists of, tell me more. Right. Right. You know, why would you say that? It's like they're, you know, like, everyone's their therapist, everyone's... Right, like they're not living in a problems. world of other fleshed out people. Right, right. We ch- we always try and see the story, this love story, from the perspective of all the characters, which is why we spend a lot of time on Josh's home, Josh's feelings. Josh has a karate dance, you know. Yeah. Um, Greg's mom, Greg's dad, Paula's kids. You know, to sort of get that that exactly that 360 idea. But that's also a luxury of television. You know, sometimes in movies. You have to lean on those kind of tropey things because you don't have as much time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in television, you know, we and we because we went from a shorter format to a longer format, we have more time to kind of explore those characters in a more 360 way. Well, That's... Aline, you say something. Sorry. Oh no, um, Aline, Aline you, you always say something great, which is like the way you live your life is what story do you tell yourself? Yeah. And everyone, we all tell ourselves a story about who we are, where our place is in the world. And for the longest time, Rebecca's been telling herself, I'm the hero, I'm the hero, I'm the hero. And the first time she's like, my, my inner narrative is not syncing up with my actual actions. Right. And that's kind of, I mean, in a way that's like, you know, in the pursuit of happiness, what story are you telling yourself about who you are versus how it syncs up with what you do is something that we really like exploring the tension with those characters. But the, the fact that she can have a realization like that makes me think that there's hope for her. Well, she has a deep yeah. sense of, of, she wants to be a good person. She doesn't know what that means. We have a whole song called I'm a Good Person. She yes. really is, is overtly um, wrestling with that. And I'll tell you a funny thing, which is um, in that episode, the I'm a Good Person episode, there's a scene where she passes a homeless lady and the homeless lady asks her for money. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, I only have 20s. I got them from working. <laughs> and... Yes. That but, I actually kind of had a sharp yeah, intake of breath. Yeah. The first time I so saw the this, first like, oh, time that was shit. pitched in the writers' room, one of the one of our writers, um, Elizabeth, pitched that, and I was like, oh, I don't know if we can pull that off. And it was one of those things where I was like, I don't know if we can pull this off. And then I was like, Oh no, we have Rachel. We're fine. <laughs> Just because Rebecca does these horrible things, but is so sunny. Yeah. Um, and so I mean, I think that there's this real. Um, it's like the homeless ladies never thought about working. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's funny because. Um, when the show was rejected by everyone, um, <laughs> one of the networks was like, we just thought it would be like edgier. Now, in the original pilot, my character gives a hand job. Blow job. And a blow job, <laughs> and is crying. Um, it's the scene with Greg, which in, is now a makeout scene, but originally, like, she's full on jerking him off. And, um, and we were like, what does that mean? And I think the reason is, 
there's this real trend in cable right now of characters yeah. being mean. Yeah. Right? Where it's like, I'm mean, you're mean, we're all mean, blah, fuck you. And it's like, <laughs> it's a very, um, I want to say also like straight white dude thing, especially where it's like, wouldn't it be so funny if they were all just like fucking mean to each other? And the girl was like ragging on them and they were like, shut up, you fucking bitch. And like, you can kind of, when you read that script, you can always tell like, oh, a man wrote this. And... Um, <laughs> And, and I think our show, as mean as especially Rebecca is, it's done with a sunniness because her intentions are good. No one is right. mean to each other for no reason. If someone's an asshole, it's because they have a deep amount of pain. And I think for that reason, our show didn't come off as like cool and edgy because there's an understanding of what's beneath the meanness and there's a sunniness to it. Well, and there's also that you, you feel there's so many scenes where you see her coming out and discussing her pain. Like she's making her pain present, making it public, being very open about it with another person. And the other person will give them a little bit of empathy, a little bit of an audience, but only a little. Right. Because they have their own stuff going right. on. It's not always because they're a jerk, although sometimes they are, but a lot of times it's simply because... We are so busy dealing with our own shit right. on a day-to-day basis that we only have a certain amount of time that we can devote to other people's Well, we actually, places. Paula really does devote too much time to it, and we really explored the pathology of the sidekick Beth's friend. Yes. I mean, she gets, Paula gets almost nothing from this relationship. It's, it all flows in that direction. She gets love from her, but she doesn't get any attention really from her, and so she's in that relationship being the person who's always there and drops her personal life and screws up her marriage and screws up her relationship. And it really causes her to have a nervous breakdown at the end. I I love that you've identified, though, a a particular type that we don't usually see on TV. Or or rather, I would say, like you, as you put it, you kind of discovered the truth inside of that type. You mean what? You mean in terms of her, in terms of Donna, in terms of Paula? Yeah. In what type do you mean? Oh, just the people, people who sat, who are, um, Basically, willing to play the movie best friend in life, there's often some reason. For yes, it. right. And it's not the person they're helping. That's no, the no, it's their own stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the idea that, like, you know, I think Rebecca tells herself, Paul's the sidekick, but now Paul has realized that's not the story that I want to be acting out. I, I want to be the lead in my yeah. own story. Her big number in the yeah. finale was it? Or yeah, the, yeah. That was one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, it's her rage bubbling up and. One thing that um, Donna Lynn and I have talked about a lot, you know, in terms of is sort of the rage of the middle age, the invisible middle age woman. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just this thing where, um, you know, I, I often say there's three genders. There's men, women, and women over 40. It's like <laughs> you just kind of disappear from mm-hmm. the grid. And I think she's so smart and she is very sexy and appealing, but she's sort of disappear- She's being disappeared and then here comes this young woman who really is sort of making herself very present in her own personal narrative. And for Paula, it sort of uncorks this sort of sense of injustice as where, how, where she's gotten in her life and the fact that instead of processing that feeling, she really went towards. And I, I think one of the things about Rachel that is unique as a person who's the star of the show is that she's as concerned, if not more concerned, with the journeys of the other characters. I mean, I would say that in some ways, the Rebecca stuff is like second nature to us in a funny way. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time, Rachel spends a lot of time really, really, really thinking very deeply about the other characters as well. And that's a lot of t- what we spend time doing in the writer's room. And you'll notice that in the finale, there's two songs and, and Rachel doesn't have either one of them. Um, and that's, I think, most people who would star in their own show and write their own songs would have written that big show-stopping number 
something like that yeah. for themselves. But because, um, you know, as, as writers of the show, we're always looking for, like, what makes the most sense in terms of the overall story. And so as an actor, Rachel has, like, almost no vanity. Uh, she allows the writer to do what's best for the show and for the for the series. And so that's, you know, we don't, we don't have to service the vanity of our lead. Well, another thing that the show has been praised for is the diversity in the cast and just also just how I'm from Southern California and it's just so I'm from San Diego, but I actually, I left a job because it was moving to West Covina and I didn't want to work there. (laughs) Wait, what job was moving to West Covina? They were moving, like, the copy desk at the newspaper I worked at. They were, like, moving it to the West Covina office of, like, this big newspaper. And you were like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm out. That's when I moved to New York, actually. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's that's amazing. I know, and that's why the premise was so hilarious to me. That's That's bizarre. That's really interesting. Well, it's funny. West Covina is, like, for people here, it's like Hackensack. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. it's Teaneck, it's Tenafly, it's one of those places, and um, or you know, we could go. I'm not from Long Island, but you know, it's, it's Long it's Island. Great Neck, it's you know, <laughs> so it's it's one of those sort of suburbs. Um, although it's not quite as upscale as the places I just mentioned, but it is enormously diverse. I mean, it's 50 percent Hispanic, it's a quarter Asian. Um, that's what Southern California looks like. That's what that community looks like, and just and there's this, no second thought about it. That's the thing no. is like you just in in and I mean. You say something really great, which is like, in a way, the suburbs of Southern California are way more progressive because L.A. proper is very segregated. Very. But the suburbs are very, very, very integrated. integrated. And, I mean, we, we always say it's like it's everyone of every culture going to the same Applebee's. Like, it's the... Well, homo- that's why we started the first day we went to West Covina. We went to the mall and we walked across the mall. And, and the pretzel thing came about because when you walk into the mall, there's a pretzel stand. There's a, there's a Wetzel's next to an Auntie Annie's. So there's actually two. And then when you get to the other end of the mall, there's another Wetzel's. Yeah. So if you've exhausted the first pretzel and you need another before you go to your car. But one of the things is like that mall is everybody is, is mixed. Every teenage couple is mixed. Every family is mixed. There was a little playground. There's a little playground in the mall. And it's just, you know, it's a really, it's a true melting pot the way I just don't see it. Like I'm in in Manhattan now, like, the neighborhoods are really pretty, you know, divided, and for sure they are in L.A., but in the suburbs, it's really this. So, as writers, you have sort of a response. You know, I think it depends on the tone of your show, but because the tone, we're trying to ground, because there's a lot of flights of fancy in our show. We try and ground the stuff that isn't the flights of fancy. And so, for us, it's really important to be really, like, real about the community. And so, like, um, if anybody saw the Christmas episode, the kids who dance that Josh dances with, mm-hmm. his old squad, th- that is the West Covina uh, large all-male hip-hop champion dance team. And they are number they one like in, in, the country. in the country. And we brought them in from um, West, Covina West, Covina, West Covina High School. Wow. And they were m- a- Asian and Hispanic kids. I, I, was, I was in uh, Southern California uh, <clears throat> not too long ago, and I saw uh, directions on a sign to West Covina, and I heard your voice singing. Yeah, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people say that. Yes, yeah, so I'm yeah. like, I can't see that on Never a map anymore. It's now it has musical accompaniment. <laughs> yeah. Good. <Great. laughs> You've done wonders for that town. It's like um, New Rochelle. Oh, they're, the, West, the people of West Covina are like, uh, what? What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> We're like really tight now with the mayor of West Covina. Shout out to James Toma. Um, yeah, he's great. He's great. They've embraced, they really have embraced the show. He went to Yale. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> 
And you, Rachel, you've mentioned that you want to you want to keep prioritizing diversity in the next seasons and just going forward. Can you talk a little bit about you know your plans for season two in that way in terms of bringing in new characters? Yes. Well, Gabrielle is a season regular now, um, and we are always. I mean. When you, when you cast things, you have to be really specific. So when our breakdowns go out, we tend to be really specific about um, bringing in people from other... But it's not just race. It's also, like, bringing in people who are overweight. You know, the uh, Americans are often overweight. People in the suburbs are overweight. And if you don't ask, they bring you skinny people. Um, and so, you'll, you know, we try and get different body types, different races, different ages... Just, just so that it doesn't, you don't fall into that thing where you're watching a TV show and everyone looks like a model. Everybody looks like an NBC. actor or a model. Well, just <laughs> yeah, like sometimes I mean, people yeah. are so attractive in shows that I feel like someone would walk up to them and be like, "Oh my God, you're gorgeous. You need to just leave you're this. Sh- you need to go be a model. Yeah, like, like to leave West Covina and go be a model. I've never understood that. Like, why? And again, like, I don't know if this is like a male gaze thing or whatever, but like, why is it so important for people in shows to be attractive? I've know. never understood that. Like, so our casting director knows, like, we love cool faces and interesting people, and maybe people you haven't seen before, and so we actively. Uh, and I mean, the people on our show, I think, are they're great looking. No, 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 they're, they're, they're great looking, looking, but they're not. They're but they're not, not fucking like stick figure model, like like coming out of a factory. Everything's perfect, and like. I don't know why that makes you, why people think that makes you suddenly want to watch a show. Yeah, so we just, we, we, it's just something we always um, do when we write the characters is we make them really specific. It's easier for the casting directors to go look for something when they have a specific request for a certain, you know. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes we just say anything. Well, and but. also the, the Daryl White Josh plotline this season was yeah. one that totally was delightful and kind of, I think, <laughs> took a lot of people by surprise. Can you talk about that and how you decided to make him bisexual versus gay? Well, we knew that there was going to be a deep sadness to Daryl. I mean, Daryl and Rebecca are similar characters in that they're both kind of flighty optimists who have a deep, deep, deep sadness and and a deep unfulfillment. And when someone is in search of identity, you know, sexuality is a big part of that, obviously. You know, gender and sexuality is sexuality. But we, we didn't want to negate his marriage with his wife because he his heart was broken by his wife and the divorce is very hard and her cheating on him is extremely hurtful and and Aline you brought this great point that like you um men who are bisexual are marginalized within their own community because when you say I'm a guy who's bisexual a guy goes no you're gay no you're not you're gay you're not yeah and that was just really interesting for us to explore but I also, you know, we, it's just something that we had both... I have a good friend who's bisexual and that people are so incredibly rude in the questions that they ask. Um, and it's a very strange thing that people are like, in, for women and for men, for, in different ways, they don't believe it. They just don't yeah. believe that's no, even, orientation. I feel like the when it's referenced in popular culture, like on Sex and the City... It's like, pick a like, side. Yeah, pick a yeah. side, basically. And right. that's kind of been the overriding mentality. Right, and I think we know now. But it's, it's, it's kind of a perfect... Um, situation for Daryl because he's in search of something and then when he finds this thing he's just the kind of person he just embraces it so wholeheartedly um, and he's surprised when he embraces it that people are like I mean in the, in the getting by number it's kind of like your boss calls a meeting to announce his sexuality and like nobody cares they just want to go back to work <laughs> but he's just so excited about it partly because he's found a cause um, so it seemed to, it just fit his character really well yeah. in terms of the predicament. Um, and now we're sort of exploring, 
we're going to explore with Daryl sort of what it means to be in a relationship like that. He's always struggling with being labeled anyway as a person and feeling misunderstood. So, um, and now he's in this relationship that he feels really great in, but has to figure out how to pursue it. And then, and then likewise with White Josh, Why Joe, um, uh, we just love that, like, he knows who he is. Why Joe has a plan for his life. He is super confident. He came out, I think, when we said he was 12. Yeah. Um, and that was really cool just to, like, have a gay dude on TV who was like, yeah, I'm gay. And, like, he's like, they don't call you gay, Josh. And he's like, what? Well, yeah. And his friends are just cool with it. Yeah. That's just who he is. Generationally, that's a big difference, obviously. Yeah. I I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how how the show is made and just the sort of the rhythm of the show and the look of the show, which to me is very different from almost anything, certainly on commercial TV. You you give the actors a lot of space in the frame to act. You see, you you go to close-up sometimes when you need to, but a lot of times you make sure to see two, at least two people. Oh, thank you for, thank you for time. noticing that. Yeah. And, and you don't cut a lot. You don't cut... Uh, well, we don't, we sometimes don't you do have for a, comic effect. We don't effect, have a cutty but... show. We also don't have a super close-up-y show. Right. Um, and, Why is that? Well, that was sort of set in the, in the... Here's the thing. The musical numbers are so stylized that if you, if you try and add style and comedy sauce to the real stuff, it gets very, like, it's too much. It's like a... It's like when you get to the bottom of a snow cone and there's just like too much syrup. So we, we really made a choice, and, and a lot of that choice was made by Mark Webb when he directed the um, pilot. Like the rest of the pilot that's not the musical numbers is like shot in a style that George Cukor would recognize. It's like a very laid back. Um, Old movie style. Yeah, just, just very like conventional coverage in a way. And we don't, also because we're doing jokes, we don't tend to like have a very cutty style. Um, and, and also our actors are so great that we really can do those kind of setups where they just sort of play and you don't have to, you don't have to chop it up for timing. It's very important that, that to make the musical numbers, because the show is, is all about living in these contrasts of like naturalism and fantasy and dark and light. And so it's very important to contrast the musical numbers that the non-musical parts feel very natural. And that's also why we do a lot of of improv is improv, um, it, it, it makes dialogue when stuff is feeling kind of canned or, or planned. Um, uh, it, 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 it brings out a naturalism. Yeah, it takes out. So you do, do a lot of improv? We do a lot of, improv. Do a lot of improv. I mean, I definitely, like, um, sometimes see the scripted lines as suggestions. Um, <laughs> like, I will, I want to make it feel natural and in the moment. And so, like, I'll change around punctuation. I have the luxury to be able to do that. Um, but it's really... We do tend to get, we do tend to get whatever scripted... Um, like once or twice, and then Rachel starts to play, and then the, once Rachel starts playing, the other actors feel comfortable playing. I know my lines. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I know my lines, and the lines start, are brilliant. We kind of start with the basis of that, but it's interesting what you're saying, because like, we, we wanted to... Natural is a really good word. When we were describing the show, people kept saying to us, so does that mean that the non-musical stuff is gritty? And it's not gritty. We never use handheld. It's not docu-style. It's no. what you said. It's a very like classic, natural style and we strive for that also in the acting performances to just have things not be like arch and sitcom-y and one of the great things about moving to an hour format is that we're not boxed into tonally into being like sitcom-y so the performances can be more naturalistic well it's very daring to to do comedy in that way i think because the mode of most television comedy particularly is is cut, 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 cut between close-ups of people. And there almost seems to me like a default perception that the way to make a scene funny is to cut really quickly, like sometimes so quickly that you never get to see a person's face during the duration of their line. Like yeah. the people are, you know, cutting in and jumping in. And, well, and a, and a fun fact about that is from 
um, because I've worked as a TV writer and all my friends are TV writers. Um, uh, Sometimes when you see that on a show, it's because the actor never gave a full performance of the line. I mean, you'd be surprised how many actors aren't the best actors and (laughs) and don't know their lines. And so the editor, in doing those quick cuts makes the person look like a good actor and that happens a lot where it's like someone is saying a line and they forget it halfway through so in the middle of saying the line you cut to someone reacting to it and they're VO only because in or post their performance is not there or their performance is not there and so in post you basically cobble together this Frankenstein of a good performance where the person said the first part of the line correctly but the second part they didn't so then you do ADR for the second part off of everyone's reactions and it looks cutty 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 but it makes the person not look like an idiot so they're just they're just like it's like they're making a hot dog out of scraps of meat that have fallen on the floor. Yes. Well, I mean, there's that's, that's what things. we're talking about here. Yes. There's that, and then there's, there is this trend to things being more shot in a verite style. And I think it works for some shows. Um, great. It wouldn't work for our show because it's not, sort of not, you know, tonally in keeping with what we're doing. How are the musical numbers done? Do you record all of the lyrics... Uh, and you're lip-syncing everything, or yeah, do you have it's, the it's opportunity? All it's, all, it's all pre-recorded, pretty much. Mostly, and when we do stuff live, you have this cool thing called an earwig, which is um, it's a little tiny microphone that goes in the actor's ear. It's flesh-colored, so you can hear playback, but then you don't hear it on sound. We've done that occasionally. Um, we did that with the Settle For Me reprise in the Porta Potty. Um, we did it in episode 10, Dear Joshua Felix Chan. So, so what's coming through the earpiece? What do you hear? The, the music. playback. The music. Just the music. Without the right. lyrics. Yes, yeah. without okay. the lyrics. Um, we don't do... I mean, the thing is that um, Adam Schlesinger, who produces the music, writes the music with Rachel and produces the music, is very sensitive to things not... To what it's, how it's going to be performed. And so the how it's going to be performed matches sonically. So like... In, in Joshua Felix, you know, in, in a number where she's sitting there quietly singing, you don't have, like, sometimes in shows they'll go to, like, a blown-out production sound, even though the person is just sitting, you know, sitting, singing to a person. Mm-hmm. So they very much, the producers match the sound very much to the style of the scene. So that's why it doesn't seem like you're vaulting into another kind of emotional reality. I have an incredibly geeky follow-up to that. In a number like yeah. the one that we watched, where they're singing, but there's also parts where you're talking... Is the talking part also you lip-syncing? No. Okay, so you have the opportunity to change your intonation and yeah. the speaking part. Yeah, so things. we always try and get that loud sound, production sound on that, because it seems weird. It's funny, the singing doesn't, but the speaking does. So when, like when, you're, when you're talking between scenes, so sometimes they'll be on the demo, and then we, we record that dialogue live. Oh, right, you know, the on dialogue. the villain, my own story, I think we earwigged me for it so that we could get live production sound, but I was still lip-syncing with the sound. It just depends yeah. on the music. I mean, it's funny. All that stylistic stuff has been built on the fly, honestly, because we had to figure out it as we go. And as Adam was saying last night, like, the, the beauty of this is um, Adam had done a musical. Rachel knows about musical. I'd never done a musical before. It would never have occurred to me, like, sure, we could do 49 pieces of music. So I just kept... <laughs> we just kept writing songs and assigning pieces of music and, and it kept, you know, the, they kept coming back great and the, the process, I mean, it's, it's, what we do is we kind of run two parallel writing processes. There's the writer's room that's, you know, we're working on the script stuff. And then the song stuff is Rachel, Adam, and Jack mostly. Um, but Rachel, Adam, and Jack all have other jobs on the show. Rachel's obviously in the show. Adam is also producing all the music in addition to writing it. And Jack is one of the writers. 
in the writer's room. So they're all writing and talking to each other, and there's almost like a virtual writer's room that happens via email, exchange of demos. Do you have a piano in the writer's room so you can do a Dick Van Dyke and just like, how about this? We do. We have no, a piano this, in my office. The songwriting stuff doesn't really take place in the writer's room. That's the thing. The songwriting stuff takes place in a parallel. That's a private, that's the, it's a parallel a two-person thing. thing mostly? No, it's, it's, it's basically, it's Rachel, Adam, Jack, and then me sort of being involved in the sort of how those two, the only, you know, in the, when the show, when the series is being produced, um, there's a sort of, Jack and I are liaising between the songwriting and Rachel's performing. So Rachel is often, often on set writing songs on her computer. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, because I can't, I can write the show, but I can't write the song. So I'm always following <laughs> Rachel, Adam, and Jack around being like, when's that song coming? You can do it, honey. Come oh. on. When's that song coming? And then sometimes it's like, I need the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's been times where it's like, how many times, you know, because it's a creative process, and mm-hmm. so I always liken it to being a doula. Do you ever realize that you need a song? <laughs> Do you ever realize to... that you need a, song, a particular song to put a plot point forward, and you have to go to her and say, like, we need a, we need a childproof medicine bottle cap song? To put this across. No, we don't do, you know, it's funny, we don't do plot. If you'll notice, the songs are all designed to be lifted out so that they aren't very plotty. A few of them are plotty, like, but, but That's where you get dramatic, though, because when you learn, like, sketch comedy, you learn this term, like, what's the game of the scene, and it's the pattern of behavior, and the second you bring in plot, the second you bring in change, the comedy dies, because that plot propulsion is the opposite of comedy in some ways and so the songs even though they come from character and they come from story and they can advance the story they live in stasis because that's where sketch comedy lives in stasis so they have little basically parentheses around them yes. yeah. yeah they're a joke and they're a heightened uh, emotional moment but it's we don't we, very rare if we did it would be a joke we don't like actually explain plot stuff once you start saying Stuff about plot stuff in the song. It's it just like it's like putting um, something heavy in a wet paper towel. It just goes through the bottom. Yeah. Right. One thing I I love about the show is that even when things start going well, it always ends in catastrophe. <laughs> except when it comes to Rebecca's job and her work, and yeah. she's just such a baller. And yeah. it's just, I mean, how to just. I think to, it's hilarious that yeah. no matter how f- fucked up her life is, she just can sort of like go and do that thing, and then what? Yeah. She doesn't care. She's so smart. It's so, such second nature to her. She doesn't really care that much about it. And, and that's then, directly based on Aline, I think. <laughs> like that you're just so, I mean, but your own experiences where it's like you've always been smart. You've always been the smartest person in the room. That doesn't like. When you're in love and dating and all that stuff, it's like. Your job is important. Your work is always important, but it's sort of like it's it's a kind of a comic exaggeration of the fact that like, you know, I was doing my homework in high school and college, but really I was trying to figure out where the boys were. Yeah, I, I also a detail I love is that is how terrible Rebecca is with money. Oh yeah, yeah. Just, I didn't expect that to come to like come full circle and just be like, oh shit, I'm all out of money. Oh yeah, that's all. I mean, that's 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 like a general millennial thing, and then also myself. Um, I'm not good with money and that's a generally um but also she's a little spoiled and entitled and she's very spoiled i mean she's the definition of white privilege in so many ways and and she doesn't want to be that but she's so privileged and she sweetly doesn't realize how privileged she is and now that she's moved to this middle lower class lower middle class town she thinks she's just yeah well one of the things that's funny is you know we have that that episode where she realizes she's broke and then after that, some people in the audience expected her to all of a sudden be, like, very um, fiscally responsible. <laughs> and were surprised that she... 
she's not, she's the same. She's going to continue to. And one of our favorite things is the thing where she, her car gets repossessed but she doesn't understand that she doesn't own it anymore. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, no, so it's that great thing, like, she, and she says that, and she's like, well, I'll just sell the car, and Paula just goes like that, and it's like, wait, what? Paula? Yeah. Paula? Is it not my car? Paula? <laughs> Paula? And we have, like, a take of me doing it for five minutes, where it's yeah. like, is it not my car? <laughs> Paula? Paula, tell me. <laughs> Paula. Paula, tell me. <laughs> Paula? Paula? Tell me, Paula. Paula, tell me. Paula? But yeah, and I just love that she's so smart, but she's like an idiot. Yeah. Well, one thing that comes up in the Dream Ghost episode mm. is um, how you have had this passion for musical theater as a character on the show as well. Is that something that's going to kind? Of, is that something we're going to see developed on the show in terms of her? A little bit. We we've kind of played with it. We wanted to. This is just like a. I, this is not a spoiler alert because we don't have plans to do this. But we um, Rachel had a really funny idea, which is that she would take singing lessons, because it's sort of based on, like, I love to sing, but I, I can't really sing. And when you see Rebecca sing in real life, it's horrible. <laughs> She's um, a horrible voice. Horrible voice. But um, we w- would love to have her take singing lessons from Aunt Myrna, Josh's aunt, who's played by Leia Salonga. And um, Rachel had that idea, and I think that would be amazing I if she, like, that. goes to try and, s- and she's screeching at Aunt Myrna. <laughs> So the show, congratulations on the Golden Globe, obviously. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering how much that changed conversations with the network. Just, did you feel re- like a little bit more at ease in terms of getting the show picked up for a second season after no. that? No. <laughs> we did and then we didn't. We did and then we didn't. Like, <laughs> it, I mean, the bloodbath of cancellations that just happened... I mean, Aline and I we were in the middle of the writer's room, and we, and we just looked at each other, and we were like, we are so fucking lucky. This was us every day this week. was like, I'm so lucky we have a show, and we're in the writer's room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I knew we knew all these friends whose shows were not coming back, and some of them were really great shows, and, and we just have been so um, you know, bathed in gratitude, and Rachel wouldn't have the Globe if they hadn't showered all that support on us. I mean, they have supported us at every... The studio and the network have supported the show at every stage of the game, and... We're just just enormously lucky that the television landscape has changed so that if you have an ardent enough kind of audience, you don't need to have the numbers that we that you you know used to have. But um, I mean, definitely the Globes helped um, raise the, the profile of the show. But you know, we're still in, in search of, of finding more people to watch it. Now that you're done with with season one, looking forward to season two. Is there anything you look back on that you've kind of learned from season one that you for example, Matt, Matt and I were talking to the American showrunners, and they were talking about their first season and how they had wished they hadn't killed a certain character at I that point. I love that show so much. So I'm obsessed good. with that yeah. show. But they wanted to give it more. They wish they had car- stayed with that character more to give it a little more emotional weight. Here's what we learned. We learned a lot. Of, we learned <laughs> a lot of fucking perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, we, there's, 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 uh, I don't think you, there's every episode Rachel and I would sit down and look at, there's a, there's a, a goof and a bobble and something we wish had been shot a little bit differently for sure. Oh, yeah, sure. There's that we errors wish... in every yeah, single there's, music there's, video. Yeah, there's, there's stuff that, uh, obviously, as a creative person, but we have enormous logistical challenges in creating the show because Rachel's with the writers for the first eight weeks, and then she goes off to be in the show, and she's... It's this really sad um, romance because the writer's room is on one end of this little hallway, and at the other end is Rachel's dressing room in her office, 
And she comes walking in, you know, to get changed, and we're all like, <laughs> And then I'll come and into the writer's room to check in in various outfits, including, like, sometimes a bra and underwear, because right. that's my outfit. And I'm just like, my tits are out, and I'm just like, all right, so what do we got on this story, B? Um, and we get her for two seconds, and then she, she hurdles out the door. So logistically finding time, Rachel and I work every weekend during the season, rewriting the scripts together, and... And at night, and um, like a huge part of my job is figuring out when to loop her in because yeah. she she cannot look at every outline, she cannot look at every draft, she cannot look at every cut. She'd be mm-hmm. in a hospital. So I would say like ten percent of my job is being like, okay, this outline is ready for Rachel to give feedback on. This script is is, re- is ready for Rachel and I to review. You know, I, I I will sometimes have to watch seventeen, eighteen cuts of at least of an episode, and I try and limit Rachel to two. And then um, we schedule time for Rachel to go in and sit with the editors always on the music video. So those editors like Rachel will come busting in dressed as a witch and sit down with the editor for an hour and then, you know, bust out. And so logistically, we learned a ton about how to do it. And, and you know, this is our, our uh, precious natural resource and how to not exhaust her. What, 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 what role does time management play in that? Do you have to say, like... I can only spend an hour working on this song today because we have to do this other thing. Oh, it'll be like Rachel's coming in to do this thing and you have 45 minutes with her and then that's it. Yeah, and then on my end, um, whatever free time I have, it's like, it's it's, it's a balance. I mean, what I learned is you can never be too prepared on the writing end of things because like as much as we feel like we have songs like in the backlog, like inevitably we're fucked at some point and it's like well I need to finish this song I'm doing the first pass of this song it needs to be done by this time so it means that okay I was going to use this free time to like watch a movie or take a bath but it's like I got to write the song instead the songs are definitely Rachel's hardest deadline because they you know we we need them and and then sometimes Adam's waiting for them, and so oh, that's so stressed out. There's a lot of homework. Sometimes here's what happens. Sometimes I'll tell Rachel about all the stuff she has to do, and she goes, "No, no, no, no." <laughs> she just curls up and goes, "Cause you know." So we try and manage it, but like I'll just give you one little example that'd be interesting for people who work in TV, which is that. So when the scripts come out of the writer's room, Rachel and I then go and rewrite them on the weekends and, and look at them and make sure that they're in shape so that she's really happy with them and she gets them and she understands them. And we used, a couple times we did a punch-up in the writer's room between that draft and the table read. Yeah. And that was a mistake because we would get the table read and there would be like, you know, eight new jokes in it. And Rachel would read them like this. What is this? Like she, so we stopped doing that. And we, we, once Rachel and I have taken our last kind of on our last version of the script before the table read, it comes to the table read exactly that way so that she's not ever looking, sitting down at a table read to see something that she didn't uh, last put her, her stamp on. And it's also not a that's show... Like a little, that's like a little, uh, you know, procedural thing, but it actually, it's very helpful to us to know, okay, this is how we do this stuff for our show. And it's also not conducive to the naturalism of the show to be overly punched. Right. We're not 30 Rock. Right. Um, we, we don't, we, we, tr- we try to live in a little bit more of a naturalism. And so like when you over punch things, yeah. suddenly people are speaking in punchlines and, yeah. and, and we have jokes, but like it disappoints, the, you know, cause sometimes the writers come up with something that's like such a amazing joke and then we just, <laughs> yeah, comes out. I, also in terms of season two, are there any song concepts 
that you're working on currently. I read that you might have a Beyonce lemonade reference. In yeah, and, and, and in that, it's inspired just by the exper- like an experimental, yeah. a visually experimental video. Um, that's what that means. And yeah, we are. I mean, here's we, yeah, we 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 have about I would say we have eleven songs I think right now in some state of process already. Can you tease any of them. Uh, I don't think yet. Um, I mean, we have everything. You know, here's the thing: we haven't repeated genres really, and yeah. so we have um, we have every kind of thing you can imagine that we haven't really done. Um, so, yeah, we have a bunch of different interesting things. I don't want to. I don't want to tease them too much. Fair enough. Also, it changes. So, and that's the thing: is right like, now. oh god, so sorry. many, so many songs on the trash heap. Of if they don't fit into the story. Although I just finished, I finally finished the, there's a song in episode one that is very dependent on, the lyrics are very in sync with the script, so I kind of wrote the first draft of the lyrics and the first draft of the script, and I just finished it. And if we get rid of it, I will fucking kill myself. I worked <laughs> so hard. I just finished it the other day yeah, in my so hotel when she, room. When Rachel means the script, it means she scripts the songs. So that's the other thing, is like, if, I, if, if we just have the lyrics for the songs, that's not enough. So she, Rachel also has to script specifically, like... In, in that, all, oh my God, I think I like you number that you guys It was watched. meticulously she scripted. Meti- it's meticulously scripted shot by shot. Yeah, and then it's like in playback, it's like 36 seconds to 38 seconds. Rebecca's on the couch with a pillow in front of her. 39 seconds to 41 seconds. Now she and Greg are in bed and she strokes. Like it's, it's very, very specific. And then we also do storyboards to make sure because we want to be very efficient. And they're musical sketches. Yeah. I mean, they're they're not music. They're not shot, like in a mu- music video, you'll often just do blanket coverage. You'll just go, you'll just hose it down with from a bunch of different cameras, and then you go cut, cut, cut. But because they're sketches and the jokes are specific, we have to make sure that like if the joke is I'm going to Fiji, you know, like she and she's going to grab the Fiji water, you have to make sure where we've had mistakes is when we have not had specific coverage of. A joke. So we now it's scripted super specifically. Yeah, and it's like it's there's nothing. It's like so you want the insert of the Fiji water? Just get the fucking insert of the Fiji water. You don't need to do a zoom. Right. You don't need to do a shaky cam with it. You don't need to like have like effects on it. It's just it's it's serve. The, you need to serve, serve the, the writing, not the like cinematography. And I think that's yeah. where I mean the hardest thing to find um, is like a com a good comedy editor, especially because. Um, when you're editing comedy, you need to serve the writing and the timing. You're not looking for interesting... This is not a place for the editor to demonstrate their signature style. No. Or, for, uh, frankly, for a cinematographer or the director to go nuts with, like, styly stuff. Unless it's part... Unless, unless it's, it's inherent part of the story. Of, yeah. Inherent to the script, yeah. Um, and it's... I mean, I remember walking into the <laughs> editing place one time and... Uh, there's this song, Having a Few People Over, which is like techno, and it lives in these frenetic cuts. And I was like, there need to be more cuts. And they were like, oh, well, uh, someone told the new editor that you don't like cuts. cuts. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> no. I was like, I like cuts when it's inherent to the genre and the comedy. And in this case, quick cuts are part of the genre. I don't like quick cuts when someone's in the middle of a joke line and you cut away from the joke line because you're trying to be experimental. Like, that shit. No, that's not sketch comedy. So anyway... And then she beat him. What? And then you beat him. You beat him up. And then I beat him up. kicked him a lot. And then I kicked him so much. Um, (laughs) Lawsuit. And, uh... Lawsuit. And it was dropped. (laughs) I I just... I just gotta say, I... You know, I came into this with a great respect and appreciation for all the things you're doing but hearing the way that hearing the like 
all the levels that your brain is operating on in this show, I can't even, I can't get my mind around your mind. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Thank you. Like, and I'm going back through TV history, and I'm trying to think of who, what other people are doing this particular mix of things simultaneously. I mean, Carol Burnett I was and Lucille say, Carol Ball Burnett, and Lucy. Jackie Gleason, you know, who wrote the music for his own show in addition right. to doing all those other things. But not, like, there's not very, this is a very elite Flight of the Concords. I mean, Flight of the Concords, like, yeah. there, you can count on one hand the number of original musical television shows. Um, uh, Flight of the Concords, Smash... Garfunkel and but also, I, I, you know, it's, yeah, but it's different though because you're, you right. know, you're the you're the primary creative driving creative force, and you're also at the center. You know, like right. you're you're the lead actor, and you're hands on with all the production stuff, including the music. Right. It's just heavy duty. Well, we have you know, it's, it's it takes a village. We have you know, obviously we have we have an entire writers' room, and we that's how we do this. That's how we get the scripts out, and we have yeah. Adam and Jack doing the music, and we have another executive producer. Aaron Ehrlich, and we have, you know, so there's, there's a lot of infrastructure so that what Rachel can do is focus on, because she's got to perform, and in order to perform, she has to be rested. So we really, you know, as I said, we really focus a lot of our energy on making sure that Rachel is there on the things that she needs to be on, which is, you know, making sure that the scripts are all legible to her and that all the music stuff is exactly the way she wants it. And once you've written, I'm sorry, once you've written a song, there's all these other steps that it has to go through. You have to record the song. Mm, you have right. to... Like, can you walk us through that quickly? Okay, so... What's the assembly line? So, okay, so assembly line is like some shape of like, I do rough lyrics, send to Adam. Adam writes a song on his own. Jack writes a song on his own. Adam, Jack, and I get together and write a song. Adam produces the track. Adam and Stephen Gold produce the track. I mean, so some version of Rachel, Adam, or Jack writes the first draft. Sometimes together. Sometimes independently. Um... Yeah, right, yeah. Then it's, so, so actually, to back up, we have the script, we decide this is right for the story. We, like sometimes the writer's room comes up with an area for a song, and then we go to Rachel and she says, oh, it should be this song, it should be this concept, we hash that out. Then one of the three songwriters takes the lead in writing it, and they almost always run it back past the other writers, and it has to also make it through the script process. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so once we have that done, then we have to script it into the script so that it looks like it doesn't just say song here with lyrics, that it's part of the script. Mm. So Rachel will write those little scripts, and I'll take them and put them into the, the script that we've written in the writer's room with Rachel's input. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So then we have a script with a song in it. Then they record it. So Rachel's in, I would say, how many do you, you probably, she, Rachel probably sings 60, 60% of the songs? Yeah. 70% of the songs? Yeah. So either Rachel records it or the other vocalists record it. And then there's a track. We have a recording booth in our writer's room building. Um, so then, and, there, and, there's a, and there's a track you, in varying states have done. Yes. Um, with that, either it's you know, a pop music track that Adam and Stephen created. Sometimes it's orchestral. Yes. Um, so sometimes we'll pre-record to a track, and then later they'll put the orchestra. Occasionally we get to, like on the Villain of My Own Story... I recorded my vocals with the orchestra at a separate studio, we which don't wanna, is yeah, amazing. We can't sell short the idea that so these demos go out, and then they go to Adam and Stephen to produce. And sometimes they're they're just they're playing guitar in their studio, and sometimes they have fifty musicians, mm. and they have every different genre. They hire different musicians to get that track done. So that demo goes out from. So Rachel and I have a demo that we've heard and we've approved. Then it goes out. Then it comes back as a finished song. 
And depending how screwed we are on time, <laughs> um, sometimes very. When you do the song, there is a script or there isn't a script. Um, but but the goal is by the time we shoot. So it's, okay. So then right. Okay. So then you record the song. Okay. You record the song, and then at some point in here, we've had a script. Because by the time the director starts in pre-production, right. we need to discuss the script because we need to do storyboards right. and make sure everything... And storyboards, you know, a drawing of each shot to make sure everything is, like, exactly planned the way that So basically, here's, here's the way to think of it. We're doing a half-hour television show, which is kind of run and created the way a half-hour television show is created. Um, with me running the room and Rachel contributing and and rewriting the scripts with me as the co-creator. But the, the writing room functions large. So that, that process of like getting scripts out, written, revised, put to table, read, all that stuff. That's all, all this. All, all this, this lady, this lady is, is, is the reason the show, I mean, yeah. You're but then parallel to that is, is the two to six minute section, section of the show. It's usually four to six minutes because they're two to three minutes. There's a whole parallel process and Rachel is in charge of making sure that creatively that's exactly what she wants. So we have um, one... And it has to sync up with the other half. And has to sync up with... So I have to be in on those meetings because those meetings can't... So at the beginning, we used to have separate... We call them dance concept meetings, and I don't know why they have nothing well, to do with it's dance. Well, chore- because it's for, the, it's for like the choreography, theoretically. So we have, a separate, we have production meetings and concept meetings and all that stuff for the episode. Yeah. And then we have a separate little, little meetings for the music videos... And we used to do them where I wasn't there, and then it created a problem because things would come out of it that were either too expensive or not doable or didn't work with the script. So now I go to those two. But Rachel runs those and says this, that, this, that, this. So it's almost like there's these two music, producing, music videos being produced in conjunction with this thing, but they have to be completely interdependent. So what that means is every time Rachel and I see each other ever when we're in production... We just are always going, and I got the thing, and I need the script, and I got the thing, and what about that? We can't do that, and we can't afford it, so we can't do that. So we have four dancers instead of three dancers, and the thing in the script, and I changed that joke, and we rewrote the ending, and so that's not going to happen, but literally, that's what that is. I would say the show is, so one of the things is the ADs try and get her to set without her seeing me. (laughs) Because otherwise, I'm late. I mean, that's the thing is, like, do not let, they tell all the directors, um, I go to the bathroom a lot on set, partially because I have a tiny bladder, and, an, and a very active large intestine. Um, uh, but also, it's, it's the one place I can zen out because when I'm on set, in between takes, I'm writing or I'm talking to someone and the bathroom is where I go and check my fucking Instagram. And so... And so, like, they've scheduled around... My bathroom breaks are so long, they've built it into so the schedule. So there's two things I learned. So when I directed the last episode, right. when you show up to direct an episode of a television show, you're mostly new to the show, Right. So they have a bunch of things that they'll tell a new director, which is like, this actor is this, and this actor's great at improv, but this actor isn't, and da da So the two things they're told about Rachel is, she goes to the bathroom a bunch, and when she's in the bathroom, you'll start to see her liking things on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs> and that'll happen for like a while, and then she'll come back. And the production is actually, it's not just that she's going to the bathroom, it's just like she needs a little break. So that's... And then the other thing that you're told is try and keep Rachel away from Aline because if they see each other, they will try and start to... Because I have so many things always to loop her in and make sure that she knows that this... And because the production of it is so intense, um, we're often on a thing where it's like, 
you know, there's a, there's rain at this location or there's, you know, we couldn't afford the dancers for this or this got messed up at the last minute or this costume or the, so we're always trying to, but then it's for, she has to wake up at four in the morning and look gorgeous and go perform. So I also, as I said, you know, (laughs) she's tired just thinking about it because we're about to start this process. Also, it's been a really long trip. I'm tired. (laughs) But also like I have to say it relates a lot to my being, I'm a mom of two kids and I also have to take care of her. And every single person that I hired, I'm not kidding, every single person that I hired in the beginning that we hired, I said to them, you are, part of your job is being responsible for Rachel's health and well-being. We cannot do the show without her. So you need to make sure that when you're on set as a producer, writer-producer, if you see Rachel in any form of distress, tired, needs water, is confused about something in the script, has a question, is uncomfortable with an actor, anything. Your job is to go to her and make sure that she is okay because you cannot do what she's doing. You can't be Tina Fey and Lucille Ball and Bette Midler and Carol Burnett without uh, having people around you take care of you and make sure you're okay. And we have assembled... Our our line producer, Sarah Kaplan, who's like my mom, (laughs) is like if she sees Rachel being infringed upon in terms of her energy or anything like that, she is a mama lion and she will just peel people away. <laughs> it's really great. Yeah. I'm really, it's, I'm, thank you. I'm really taken care of. Um, yeah. And given that she's still often very tired. So. <laughs> it's just hard. I mean, it, but it's, it, the other thing is like, it's, Sure, I don't see friends, but like, <laughs> and I wouldn't see my husband unless he a didn't live with me and b writes on my show. Um, that's partially like how I see my husband, but um, it's the most like I'm always happy to do it. It's it's everything I've always wanted to do yeah. with my art and my career, and so it's the most creatively, artistically fulfilling thing I could ever hope for. So like, I'm happy to take my spare time and write a script because it's like, I get to do a Disney villain number on broadcast television? What? Like, that's... Who lets you do that? No one lets you do that. So it's it's happy exhaustion and it's like a porn star I'm being filled in all of my holes. (laughs) But I'm happy. Guys, I, it looks like we're out of time. I'm so well, sorry to cut can't, it off. You can't stop the perfect ending. That's it. <laughs> hey, Josh. <laughs> yeah, Bex? Can I tell you something? Yeah. I moved here for you. The second I saw you on the street in New York, I knew. I, I, I just knew you were the answer to all my problems. I lost sight of it for a minute, but now I know for sure. This is our moment, Josh Jen. I'm so excited that our love story can finally begin. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Gazelle on Twitter at Gazellephant and Matt at Matt Zoller Sites. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. The show is produced by me, Sam Dingman. We'll be back next week with another all-new episode. We'll see you then, and thanks for listening.